Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. Hello, Ivy Church. Hello, Ivy Church. Welcome to Ivy Church. Hello, Jamba. Everybody, Kalisani, Ivy Church. Good to see you. Welcome to Ivy Church. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Well, I hope you're as excited as I am that we are coming back into this autumn term with a whole new series as we start to gather back together or as you're joining us online. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at the first few verses of that as today we start a new series on the Beatitudes, which is a, 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 we're going to look at some sermons about the f- most famous sermon ever preached. We call it the Sermon on the, on the Mount. And, and the key to understanding that, though, is to realise that this is not a, a, a speech from Jesus about the best way to live. What we're not looking at is the do attitudes, but the be attitudes. Moses went up a mountain and came down with a list of commands of things to do or not do. Jesus went up a mountain and came up with a list of blessings. But for who? Who gets blessed like this? You know, over the years you might hear people say things like, well, I'm not really a religious person, but I just try to live my best like the Sermon on the Mount. Or people might say, the world would be fine if everybody just lived like it says in the Sermon on the Mount, whatever we believe. Well, if ever anybody says anything like that to you, you know for certain one thing, they don't understand. They probably may not have even read these words because it's not about being a good person. It's not even about how happy people are, good people, or or we're going to understand as we read through these things that Jesus wasn't trying to tell the world how to live better and be blessed. He was speaking to his disciples to tell them that they're blessed. They're already blessed. We're already blessed no matter what. And the key to understanding it is found right at the start. Matthew 5, 1-2 says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Who did he teach? The disciples, his followers. He's not just telling everybody how to be saved, he's telling the saved how to be. You read in the chapter before that, multitudes have started to follow Jesus because of the healings, because of the deliverances that he's been doing. And so he left the crowd behind and he goes up a hill. And what we call the Sermon on the Mount isn't really a sermon to a crowd after at all. It, he went up the mountain to leave some behind so he could just talk to the close ones, to the believers, because these beautiful attitudes of life don't actually make a lot of sense for people who don't believe. We're going to hear things like how you can be blessed when you mourn. Why? Because you'll be comforted by God in this life and the next forever. But unbelievers don't get that comfort. He says you'll be blessed even if you're persecuted, when people lie about you and so on, because you belong to him. And if you don't belong to him, again, it makes no sense. It's not going to provide any comfort to you, except if by faith you've trusted in Jesus and put him first. If the world wrote a list of, a list of living the blessed, best life, it would sound more like blessed are the healthy, the wealthy, the powerful and so on. So as we start to look at them, we're going to see that even the first one we look at today doesn't make any sense without knowing Jesus. He said, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that word here, blessed, is the Greek makarios, and it's also translated happy, but originally it was only used by the Greeks to describe their gods. It wasn't thought possible for mere humans on this messed up planet to live with this kind of happiness. The gods had to transcend it. But the way Jesus is talking about this is, no, this is something on the inside. Like, you know, you say you you can either be a thermostat or a thermometer. 
A thermometer just reacts to the temperature around it, but a thermostat changes the temperature. With these Beatitudes, it's about something going on on the inside, no matter what's going on on the outside around us, because we've got Jesus in us, we've got the Holy Spirit in us. That's the only way you can make sense of some of these statements. So Jesus doesn't say here, blessed are the poor. Ask somebody who's really poor how blessed they feel. No, he's talking not about how much you've got in terms of money or possessions, but about realising your spiritual poverty and being humbled by that when you approach God, rather than coming with him proudly, coming before him. See, if I wanted to sum this up in one sentence, I'd say, happy are the humble. The word humble is linked to the idea of good soil, soil in the ground that's, that's already there. And maybe, I don't know, you feel like your ground's been broken up. Maybe you feel like there's been a bit of fertiliser thrown on you. And that's actually not a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing. Book of James, chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he's quoting the Old Testament there because over and over again in Scripture, pride is at the root of sin. And of all the sins we can possibly commit, it seems God hates pride the most. In 1942, in a talk entitled The Great Sin, C.S. Lewis wrote, There is one vice which everybody in the world loathes when they see it in somebody else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine themselves to be guilty of. There's no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger and greed are mere flea bites by comparison. And he talks about the devil and then he says, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Why would he say that about pride? Later on he explains, in God you come up against something in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. So, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. This was brought home to me personally the other week when I had some time away and went walking in Wales and funnily enough was listening to a sermon going up a mountain. Well, there's actually a chapter from this amazing book I think everybody should read called The Calvary Road by Roy Hesse. And I, I bought it, I read it years ago, but now I've got it on Audible and time and time again I was listening to it and I'd just be like, wow. And there was plenty of amazing and hallelujahs and quite a lot of oh help me Jesus because God was speaking to me very often convicting me about the state of my heart in all sorts of ways as I walked along with this book that was written in 1950 by an English evangelist who'd invited some speakers for a conference he was organizing here and they came from Africa from the East African revival and what they said the spirit they carried made him realize that even though he'd been going through the motions and in his own words however he'd become the neediest person at the conference that he'd organised, outwardly he was successful in ministry, but he knew he needed, and everyone needs a revival of the heart. It says in the introduction what revival means to him, and he says, revival is not good Christians becoming better Christians, because as God sees us, there are no good Christians. Rather, revival is Christians honestly confessing that their Christian life is a valley of dry bones. And by that confession, qualifying for the grace that flows from the cross and makes all things new. As he says, as you listen to their messages and testimonies, something started to change inside of him. That revival started with brokenness on the inside. But I want to listen for a particular word here. He says, as my wife and others humbled themselves before God and experienced the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, I found myself humbled by the simplicity of the message of what I had to do to be revived and be filled with the Spirit. You see, God gives grace to the 
humble. We get to choose whether we will humble ourselves or not today. Listen, please don't ask God to humble you. You really don't want that to happen. It would be the most painful thing imaginable. And he never says that he wants to do that anyway, but the Bible says over and over again, humble yourself before the Lord. So many chapters in the Calvary Road moved me, but the final chapter is unforgettable. It's where we talked about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. You probably know the story, but it's only short, so I'll read it again, then I'll quote some of the things he says in the book about it, because to me here, he's summing up what it really means to be poor in spirit, which is the only way, Jesus says, you get the kingdom of heaven. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here's what Roy Hessian says about this. He says, We've all become so used to condemning the proud, self-righteous attitude of the Pharisee in the parable that we can't see that this is meant to apply to us, which only shows how much like him we really are. The Sunday school teacher was never so much a Pharisee as when his lesson on this parable finished with the words, now children, we can thank God that we are not like this Pharisee. In particular, we are in danger of adopting the Pharisee's attitude when God wants to humble us at the cross of Jesus and show us the sins in our hearts that are hindering personal revival. We will never understand the real wrong of the Pharisee's attitude, nor of our own, unless we view it against the background of what God says about the human heart. In Mark 7, Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. What a picture! Here is God's picture of the human heart, the fallen self. It's hard to believe that these things can proceed from the heart of ministers, evangelists, Christians, but it is true. The simple truth is that the only beautiful thing about the Christian is Jesus Christ. God wants us to recognise that fact as true in our experience, so that in true brokenness we shall allow Jesus Christ to be our righteousness, holiness and all in all. Now in the face of God's description of the human heart, we can see what the Pharisee did. In saying, I thank you God that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, he was protesting in his innocence of the very things God says are in every heart. He's saying, these things are doubtless true of other people, this tax collector's confessing them even now, but not me, Lord. And in saying that, he was making God a liar. For in 1 John 1.10 says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. We have sinned. I'm sure he was perfectly sincere in what he said, even ascribing his imagined innocence to God, saying, I thank you. God's word, however, stood against him and he'd not seen it. If the tax collector was beating his breast and confessing his sins, it was not because he'd sinned worse than the Pharisee. It was simply that the, the tax collector had seen that what God says is true was true of him. The Pharisee had not. He thought outward abstinence from certain sins is all God requires. He'd not understood that God looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. How often have we too protested our innocence when God wanted to convict us, saying, these things may be true of others, but not of me. 
If we feel we are innocent and have nothing to be broken about, it's not that these things are not there, but that we have not seen them. We've been living in a realm of illusion about ourselves. Wow, Jesus starts out then his Sermon on the Mount, some of the most famous words ever uttered, by talking about how the only people who can be blessed the way God wants them to be are those who know they don't deserve any blessings, don't deserve any such thing. Those who know that they're poor in spirit and how much we need grace, not just to become a Christian, but for everything else. And yes, they know and they admit they've sinned and they've broken God's laws. And you are broken by that, not too proud to admit it. That's what flings open the door to all the blessings of God's kingdom. You can't be filled by God when you're full of yourself. You can't be filled unless we are emptied of ourselves. You can't open up the treasures of heaven on any other basis. The doorway of the kingdom of heaven is very low. We can't walk in there with our heads held high in pride. We have to come on our knees. You can't be saved when you don't think you need the saviour. You can't be forgiven of sins that you don't think are actually that bad. Bad enough to be sins. Even if God says clearly they offend his holiness, break his commands in his heart. You can't receive grace that you're too proud to ask for. Jesus is saying, happy are the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Start here. We have to admit our need before he can meet it. We don't just need grace to become a Christian, but to be one. It's a be attitude. We have to keep on admitting, I need this. So remember, Jesus talks about being poor in spirit. And he's not talking about material poverty. If the poor are the people who are the most blessed, then our country's in for a lot more people getting blessed this year. That isn't what he's talking about. The word poor here is from the Greek ptokas. And it's not, it isn't like somebody who's not really got much to spare. It's somebody who's desperately begging. The kind of beggars I've seen on the street in Haiti or in, in India who've become so destitute, all they can do is plead for their existence every day. They've got no resources, skills, no work, no hope, apart from that somebody might be kind to them. Christ says when we get like that in a spiritual sense, then get ready to be happy because that's who God blesses. Because to those who know they really are beggars, he gives what? The kingdom. Those who stoop low enough to serve obtain the crown of life. Do you know that God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. God won't help those who help themselves. God can't help those who help themselves. But he will always help those who know, I can't help myself. I get it wrong and I mess up time and time again. I can't help myself. If I admit the truth, I need a revival to start here with me. If I admit I'm not the great Christian anybody might think I am, however long I can pray, like a Pharisee. I am desperately spiritually poor. I'm a sinner powerless to save myself or control my tendency to do wrong and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Actually, in the original language, the tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Like, that's how personal this is. It's not the sins of the whole world we're talking about here. It's me. Jesus died for me because I needed that mercy. In the recovery ministry, recovery community, step one. You know AA and all those recovery groups come out of the Beatitudes in the first place, that's where they originated. Well, the step one is the admission. We can't help ourselves, we have become powerless. That's poor in spirit. Many say it's the hardest step, and you, and, but you can't miss that step. Everything in us wants to say, I'm powerful, I can handle it, I can control it. But you can't do any of the other steps without the first one. You have to start this way to, for God to be able to rebuild your life. So as we get ready to pray today, remember, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
And that's really good news because as soon as we take off the mask and ask for help and power from God and others, recovery, rebuilding and revival can begin. As soon as we admit I'm powerless and we open ourselves to seek his power at work, I access God's strength when I admit my weakness. When I say I can't change my past, I can't change other people, I can't even change myself, but Lord, have mercy on me and change me. Let's get ready to talk with God about this. I know some people right now you're thinking, oh, I don't need to do this. A little voice says, I can do it myself. I can solve my own problems. You know what that is? It's the biggest problem. It's pride. Pride is you looking down on God. So look up to God and admit it. Step one, pour in spirit. Say, God, I can't help myself. Will you help? If you come to God empty, he, he wants to fill you. Come to him like a beggar. He'll crown you as a king and a queen. The Bible says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He exchanges our poverty for his royalty. Start to pray and talk to him. If you could fix yourself, you'd have done it already, but you couldn't. We needed a saviour. We all need a saviour. And the good news is his name's Jesus. And to anybody who's poor in spirit, he says, I am rich in love and mercy. So what needs changing in your life? What have you been powerless to change yourself? A hurt, a habit, a hang-up, something you've been trying to ignore. Just admit it. Say, God, I have a problem. I need your help. I'm not going to compare with other people or anybody else, but Lord, I'm the problem. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And remember, that's the guy who went home with God's blessing that day. I don't want to be like the other guy. Admit our need. Lord, we ask you for your help. We name the problem. We humble ourselves before you. I'm sorry about that resentment, that greed, that addiction. Please help me to live without shame. Help me to just admit it. Change me so that I can obey you from now on. So I want to stop doing the wrong things. Lord, I'm naming the hurt, the heartbreak, the habit, the thing I've been trying to fix or ignore but I've come up empty and I come now to the cross and I admit my need and I just say, Lord, have mercy on me. Tell him you're sorry. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Even for the pride that kept me away, that kept me going round and stuck, kept me going round in circles. As you tell him, Lord, I'm giving up trying to manage life on my own. I draw near to you and I know you draw near to me because you oppose the proud. But thank you, Lord, that you give grace to the humble. Happy are the humble. For theirs is the kingdom. Delaney, I'd love to welcome you to Ivy Church. Do check out the website, click on a few buttons, look at some previous teaching and some of the other things that we've been involved with. And why not plan to join us soon at one of our locations? Join a grow group, do the alpha course and figure out for yourself what it is that Christians believe. Or if you've got anything we can pray about, be in touch, press the contact button so that you can email us, let us know about you and how we hope you can be part of us. Come and join us at Ivy Church.